The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word VOTER to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state, and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress, social justice advocate, and humanitarian. I am Andana Dayani, an entrepreneur, attorney, and most recently the co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. Welcome to The Dissenters. So, a little backstory. Mandana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of incredible people who completely blow our minds. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research to create our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Each episode, we meet one of these incredible accidental activists and learn about their journeys based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan. A dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo. In this episode, we speak with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. Shannon was a stay-at-home mom of five who, upon seeing images of the Sandy Hook tragedy, started a Facebook group to unite women against the NRA and fight for common-sense gun safety laws. The online conversation turned into a grassroots movement with a chapter in every state. And after joining forces with a key partner to create Every Town for Gun Safety, now has 6 million supporters across the country which means they have more members, more money, and more impact than the NRA. Shannon knew that a mom fighting to protect her children was way more powerful than a gun lobbyist fighting to protect gun manufacturers' profits. And for the last five years, Moms Demand Action volunteers have stopped the NRA's legislation in state houses more than 90% of the time. So stop whatever you're doing, because this story is unlike anything you've ever heard. And this is an extra special episode for me because Shannon is the woman who inspired my activism, and she has mentored me through all the most critical milestones in building our organization. She is a true hero, and we are all so indebted to her and the army of women behind Moms Demand Action who work every day to protect our communities and children. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce Shannon Watts, the NRA's worst nightmare. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Hi. So good to see your beautiful faces. Uh, We miss you. I know. It's so, it's just so zoomy. It's never like in person anymore. I know. Soon, soon. soon. This is a very, very special episode for me because I always say that Shannon is my North Star and she's she's the person I look up to who keeps me going and for so many women has really paved the way to fighting like a mother and defining what that means. She's also the woman that Deborah and I text constantly about housewives and junk food and nutrition <laughs> tips. So I don't know what that says about any of us, to be honest, but she is like our literal queen. And for me, you were the beginning of my activism and we'll get into that story, I'm sure. But somehow Deborah and I forced you to be our friend and mentor and rock. And we're so grateful for you. And we're so excited to share you with 
with this community of people and your story is just like mind blowing. But we always say if a stay at home mom of five can take down the NRA, then there's nothing you can't do. There's no excuses to chase your dreams. So who so you are take down the NRA than a stay at home mom of five. I know, but you. <laughs> But like, you're our tagline, so... I had been following Shannon on Twitter and sort of fangirling her in her DMs. And then, Mandana, you wanted to create I'm a Voter. And you said, I don't know how to do this. And I said, well, why don't you talk to Shannon Watts? And you said, how the hell am I ever going to get in contact with Shannon Watts? No, I and think I, I literally I said, her. I said, that's like saying you want to make a dress and calling Tom Ford. You don't just call Shannon Watts. <laughs> I think that is accurate. I think that is accurate. And I laughed and I said, let me ask her if she'll talk to you. And she, you know, Shannon, of course, being Shannon was like, sure. And then you were in the airport. Five days later. Rang. Yeah, I was at the airport and my phone rang. And I like had no idea. It was a random phone number and I answered it. And I was like, hello, Madonna. This is Shannon Watts. And I put my phone down. I like started hyperventilating. I was like, <laughs> we started this podcast to meet our heroes. But I always say that you are my my Beyonce. And I cannot even begin with how much we love you. But I think we always like to start at the beginning. And I, your journey has been incredible. So can you maybe just tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up? So I grew up as an only child in upstate New York, a place called Fairport. It's right outside of Rochester. And my dad worked for Xerox. So when I was in about eighth grade, uh, we moved a lot all over the country. It's almost like he was working for the military. I went to high school in two different states. Then I ended up as an adult moving around quite a bit. But I think that that set in me the ability to be alone, to be by myself, both being an only child and moving around a lot, to be very much an adult because, you know, my peers mm. all had those friend relationships of people their age and I was expected to sort of be an adult and act like an adult. It's really interesting because, you know, my dad was so religious. He was the second of five boys in a, in a second generation Irish family, Irish Catholic and so one of them had to be a priest, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. just the way it yeah. goes. And it was him. And he was very devout. And, and now my father is basically a married priest in many ways. As he's gotten older, it's, he's become more and more devout. And my mother was agnostic, if not atheist. And so I was forced my whole life to go to church every Sunday, to go to religious school, to go to religious training again on the weekends. And, and I hated every minute of it. I never felt a kinship with Catholicism at all. And it really was not until I was able to let go of the constraints of that religion that I felt like I was going to go to hell if I, if I abandoned. When I finally did that in my 40s and embraced Buddhism, it, it felt like home to me. I finally felt like, oh, this is why people are religious. You know, even my dad, he obviously must mm -hmm. feel that way about Catholicism. It's how I, I feel about Buddhism. It's kind of amazing to, to think about you growing up in, in a household that was traditional and conventional and I assume had many, many rules. And then you become a rule breaker. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yes, I mean, and, and that's what I think I liked least about Catholicism and, and just 
generally, I've never loved rules. I had a horrible learning disorder, incredible ADHD. I barely passed high school. I, I graduated with, by the skin of my teeth. And in fact, didn't even show up at my high school graduation because I didn't think I would graduate. I mean, that's really, once I, I got into middle school and the ADHD became so severe and it impacted all kinds of things, my grades, impulse control, friendships, you know, I, I think I also used that to become hyper-focused because if I don't, my whole world falls apart, right? And so by the time I got into college and I, I found journalism and I was so passionate about it, it really helped me to focus and to move forward and, and then to start to excel. But I think if you had asked my parents, you know, when I was in middle school or high school, what would become of me? I don't think that they, they had high expectations. Wow. You know, I think most people who've read about you know that you, you know, you know you as the stay-at-home mom of five who founded Moms to Man Action, but you had like a 15-year career as a communications executive for, for big companies. Was the journalism what led you into that work? Yeah. So I went to the University of Missouri and I ended up focusing on both sociology and journalism. I thought I was going to be a medical sociologist is, is what I wanted to do. And then I graduated and I just happened to go on an interview uh, that I found in the want ads to work for Governor Carnahan's administration at the Missouri State House in Jeff City. And I got the job and I found myself, you know, this 23-year-old kid. I was writing speeches for lawmakers and for the governor and, you know, doing sort of the low-level comms work. And I loved it so much that I, that I never went back. Public relations was something that, that I really enjoyed and that I was passionate about. What made you decide to stop? So I married at 23. My parents ended up getting divorced, which is not shocking when I explain their, their differences to you. But, you know, they, they divorced after 26 years of marriage. And as an only child, I think I felt very adrift. And I ended up marrying my college sweetheart right out of college. Um, I was 23 years old. I got pregnant three months later. I had that baby and got pregnant three months after that. <laughs> and I ended up having three kids by the time I was 29 years old and never sort of had a chance to take a breath and look around and, and, and wonder who I was, right? I was the breadwinner. I was a full-time mom, a full-time employee. And, and then at some point in our mid-30s, my ex-husband and I looked at each other and just realized, you know, we married very young. We were very different people and had a very amicable divorce. And then I remarried. And it was around that time, a couple years later after I got married, that I thought, you know, I'm blending this family of five. I really am going to take a break. I'm going to step back. I'm going to focus on that. And I thought, okay, I will go back to work in five years. And it was December 14th of 2012 that the Sandy Hook shooting tragedy happened. And so I, I never did go back to work. Well, thank God. Wow. Five kids. I just... Five. Five kids. That's a lot of kids. So can we go back to that day you were talking about when you were folding laundry and you heard about the Sandy Hook shooting? Can you walk us through that day? Yep. I can remember it very clearly. I was standing in my bedroom in Zionsville, Indiana, folding a ton of laundry, you know, which you do when you've got so many kids. And my husband was at work. It was a freezing day in Indiana. And I was folding the laundry and absentmindedly watching TV. And 
suddenly there was a ticker on that said there was an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. I'd never heard of it. And they were showing like live footage, right, of these families looking terrorized in the parking lot. And I just stopped, you know, and watched for hours as this tragic scenario unfolded. As we all know now, 20 children, six educators murdered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. And, you know, it was right before the holidays too. Not that it wasn't horrific anyway, but I mean, it was just this sense of tragedy upon tragedy. And I cried all day. I was in training at the time to be a yoga teacher, which makes me laugh because (laughs) I would literally be the worst yoga teacher that ever lived. The actual worst yoga. Of course. You would have been so militant. It would have been amazing. I was militant, like absent-minded. But the next day, I can still remember going to this training with my mat under my arm (laughs) and sitting in the training and and just getting back up after an hour and saying, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go back home and I've got to do something. I've got to get involved. And simultaneously, I had been seeing on my television set all of these pundits and politicians saying, hey, the solution is more guns, right? That, that if only these teachers had been armed, this tragedy wouldn't have happened. And I knew nothing about gun laws. I knew nothing about gun violence. I knew nothing about organizing. I just knew that was a lie. I knew our nation was broken. And I knew I had to get off the sidelines. And I thought that looked like I'm going to join something that looks like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but for gun safety. And that's when I got home from that yoga class. I stood at my kitchen counter with my husband and and my stepdaughter, and I was looking for an hour probably. And I was coming across male-run think tanks in DC, some male-run organizations in states. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women. And I knew how to start a Facebook page, even though I only had 75 Facebook friends. (laughs) And I... I did not have a focus group, so I called it One Million Moms for Gun Control, <laughs> not realizing that One Million Moms was an anti-gay group trying to get J.C. Penney not to oh. let Ellen DeGeneres be their spokeswoman. Oh, my God. Not realizing that no one says gun control, right? It's a, it's a very politicized phrase that, that the gun lobby has manipulated. So we had to change our name. A couple months later, but but that's what I, I started that day. And I'm telling you, it was like lightning in a bottle. The amount of women, total strangers, pouring into the page, Googling me, finding my phone number, finding my email address, calling me and 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 emailing me and saying, I want to do this where I live. And that was it. But like I guess the thing I never understand is is like what made you think that you could do that? Because I you know, we always talk about the status quo and the status quo at the time was the NRA is just like an, an American institution. It's a part of what America was. Um, the Second Amendment is a constitutional right. And we're always going to. It's a monolith. And it's just this yep, thing. It's, it's a monolith that it will not be moved. And it, it's just there. This is part of American culture. And and it was obviously not OK. And we had also been seeing shooting after shooting after shooting. But I don't think that anyone really thought that they could do anything about it. And you're just like. I'm going to organize a million people against this movement on Facebook. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous amount of courage. I appreciate that. I am not sure if, if that is true. I didn't think, first of all, I didn't know there was this underbelly of America that would start to threaten me immediately, right? 
I just thought, yeah, this is common sense. We have to get off the sidelines. We have to do something as Americans. It, it speaks to me as a mom. It speaks to me as a woman. And so I'm sure there are many, many other women and moms who feel that way. Now, in retrospect, I'm so glad I didn't know what was headed my way because, right. you know, I don't know, would you do it? I, I, obviously, I would because I know where I am, but I wouldn't have known all that was to come. And, and I would have been scared. I would have been intimidated. I, I would have been afraid of failing. I would have thought I didn't know enough, but I was so angry. And I think anger, you know, this goes back to, to the Buddhism we were talking about. Like anger can be incredibly toxic and it can corrode you as a human being, or it can propel you forward to fight for justice. Mm-hmm. And, and when used that way, it is a good thing. And, and I have not in eight, almost eight years, stopped being angry. Wow. Did your family say, hold up, you know, now that we know that you're going to be threatened, you know, maybe we should, we should not do this. Never. And, and I think if they had, it would have given me serious pause. Never once had any of my kids or my husband said, they're afraid for me. They don't want me to do something. They've always encouraged me. They've always been proud and supportive. But just like these type A moms were getting a hold of me, so were the trolls, right? All of my information was public. So I had people texting me on my my phone. I had people calling me in the middle of the night, right? Just calling all night to leave voicemails to to troll me. People cutting letters out of magazines like Son of Sam (gasps) and sending me letters in the mail. Like full-on serial killer letters? Yes. People driving past my home. And yeah, I called the police because all of these threats, right, were were coming my way. And I can remember the officer said, well, ma'am, that's what you get when you mess with the Second Amendment. No, I, I realized, there's no way. Wow. I realized then that I had two choices. I could double back or I could double down. And, and I really think that was the moment I decided that all of this trolling would be white noise to me, that I would not allow it to silence or intimidate me and that I would move forward. I love you so much. (laughs) So women all over the country contacted you and said, you know, I want to do this in my hometown, in my home community. How did that happen? Like, what was the process of the proliferation of this, this revolution? And just to add to that, how did you know that like the moms were going to be the superheroes? Like how did, when you see, when you kind of put that that mark of, I want to organize the moms. Like, is there a reason that you knew they would be the ones to move this forward? I I think it was two things. It was what I had seen with Mothers Against Drunk Driving and how Mm -hmm. important that had been to my development as a teen, right? Seeing how they changed culture overnight, seemingly. I know it took a lot of hard work and many years, but, but they did it. And also, I think the people who felt the most outraged and devastated by the Sandy Hook school shooting were, were moms. I just, yeah. I, I do. I think if you're a parent and you're sending your kid to their first grade classroom and you can't even believe that they're safe there from a, an active shooter, it, it is outrageous. And so it was those two things. And, you know, we've been told we're one of the only organizations to ever successfully start on Facebook. We, at first, were a Facebook page where we would tell stories. I mean, I say we. It was, I think, for the first two years, I did all of the posting, even on vacations. 
And we would tell stories and we would highlight news and we would talk about how people could get involved. Did you have like a singular goal at that point? Was it like at the early stages? Was it like, we just want this one thing or? Oh, I I thought when Mansion Toomey happened, I I wasn't necessarily thinking like, oh, we're going to be around into perpetuity. Like we're going to fight for Mansion Toomey, which (laughs) the Obama administration called Explain what that is? Yep. So Mansion Toomey was federal legislation that would have closed the background check loophole. Uh, Right now, you can buy a gun from a licensed dealer and you have to have a background check, but you can also buy a gun from an unlicensed dealer and not have to have a background check. So the Manchin-Toomey bill would have closed that loophole requiring a background check on every single gun sale in every state. And it was created by a Republican and a Democrat senator really in honor of the tragedy and just to show there was some kind of action. And we all thought, of course, this is going to pass. This is going to pass. And then we're going to go back to our normal lives. At least that's kind of what I thought. And in April of of 2013, just a few months after the Sandy Hook tragedy, it failed. And that just by a handful of votes in the Senate, but, but that included Democratic senators. You know, Joe Biden and Barack Obama had a press conference and it was very emotional. And, and it was kind of, you know, as volunteers, we were like, okay, well, what next, right? If the country isn't ready for this, are they ready for anything? Mm-hmm. And it was so amazing that our volunteers just intuitively pivoted to doing this work in state houses and in boardrooms because they knew there were some governors who would act. But we were also starting to see these bad bills that were really just sailing through state houses for years. It was part of the NRA's agenda, Right arming teachers, guns on college campuses, permitless carry, stand your ground. And we would have to stop those bills. And so it was realizing that Congress is not where this work begins. It is where it ends. Mm. Oh, wow. When did every town come into formation in this journey? About six months into Moms Demand Action, you know, I... I had raised about, I would say, a couple hundred thousand dollars online, which I thought, you know, was amazing. In retrospect, it's kind of funny when you consider how much it costs to organize. But there were volunteers who were doing amazing work that rightfully wanted to be paid employees. You know, they were giving so much of their time and effort. And there weren't that many donors who wanted to give money to a woman they'd never heard of in Indiana. So someone gave me very wise advice, which was that I needed to find a partner. And so I started interviewing organizations inside the space and outside the space and kind of saying like, I have this grassroots army to offer you and your organization. What do you have to offer me? And when I met with a team uh, that had created Mayors Against Illegal Guns, it was created by the Boston mayor along with Mayor Mike Bloomberg in New York City, there were a lot of similarities. And so we decided that we would join forces. We would create an organization called Every Town for Gun Safety, which is the umbrella. And then we have Moms Demand Action. It's a grassroots arm. We still have Mayors Against Illegal Guns. We have a survivor network. And now we also have Students Demand Action. So we are one of the largest grassroots movements, period, in the country. And certainly the largest gun violence prevention organization. In fact, we're now larger than the NRA. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's my favorite I love, thing to tell people. I love more than anything that you are public enemy number one at the NRA. That is such an accomplishment. 
so important to me that that's in my obituary. Oh my God. It's so amazing. It's so fucking badass. I can't take it. Can you help me understand? It seems like most of the country is ready and hungry for laws that will allow our kids to go to school and to be safe, to have background checks at the very least, and to close the loophole. How come we are unable to make that happen? Can you explain the lobbying, how the NRA works, how it intersects with politicians and ultimately hurts all of us? Yeah. So, you know, the NRA has become really the most powerful, most wealthy special interest that has ever existed in this country. They have an annual budget, or at least used to, of about $300 million. And they accrued all that wealth and power by making lawmakers either afraid of them or beholden to them. And they had a very successful run of really convincing lawmakers to do their bidding. So in exchange for support and campaign dollars to vote the way they wanted them to. And it began that their ROI in elections began to dwindle around 2010. I think their agenda is so extreme and they've been pulled to the right. You know, every single state has its own version of the NRA that's not connected to the NRA. So for example, when I lived in Colorado, they're called the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners. And and these gun groups believe that any law whatsoever is an infringement on the Second Amendment, any gun law. And they've pulled the NRA to the right, just like the Tea Party pulled the Republicans to the the right. And as the NRA has gotten more extreme, they have lost gun owners. They have lost the general public. And, you know, in retrospect, had the NRA moderated, had they come to the middle, had they simply agreed to close the background check loophole, they would probably still be the powerful, wealthy, special interest they were. But instead, they doubled down. And you may remember the press conference they had after the Sandy Hook tragedy where they said, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yes. And they are, they are now struggling financially, reputationally. They've spent $100 million, just the NRA alone, on legal fees because they're under investigation in large mm-hmm. part because of, of the work that Moms Demand Action has done. And they're also, as an industry, underwater, about $100 million, because there's no boogeyman in the White House to make make people afraid that their guns or their gun rights will be taken away. That's what they did during the Obama administration. They exploited tragedy to juice gun sales. No one's afraid Donald Trump's going to take their guns away. So they they can't sell accessories and, and guns the way they used to. So the NRA is weaker than they've ever been, and our movement is stronger than it's ever been. I, you know, it's just one of those issues that feels like there, there's such a common sense approach, you know, because I, and I remember the the first time we spoke and you explained to me how even the majority of NRA members at this point support background checks. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, okay, this is the, the collective goal. But I didn't really understand it through this like lens of profitability, because I remember I asked you, I was like, why would anyone think that you should arm the home ec teacher as a safety measure for to prevent a school shooting. Like of all the options, that does not seem like giving Miss Williamson a gun is the best version of, of how we move this issue forward. 
And then you said, well, if we if we give her a gun, then that's one more gun we sold. And that's crazy. If you go back to 1999, William LaPierre, the NRA CEO, said, and you can find this on YouTube, they supported a background check on every gun sale and they opposed guns in schools. I remember that. Yeah. And you can, you can watch him say it. And so what, what changed their position so radically in the last 20 years? It's that their demographic is dying off. They are selling arsenals and bulk ammo to white men over the age of 60. That's not a demographic that is going to be around several decades longer. So how do you maintain your profit margins in that environment? Well, you have to inculcate the next generation to believe that guns are everywhere and they need to be armed. You market guns to women by you know, making yoga pants with concealed carry holders and you make pink guns and guns for your purses. But, but you also have a legislative agenda that forces guns into K-12 schools, onto college campuses, and you, you pass something called permitless carry so you don't have to have any background checks or training to, to carry a hidden-loaded handgun in public. These are all just profit strategies, right? They're not, they're not public service announcements. The NRA and, and the gun manufacturing industry is very wealthy, and they want to keep it that way. I remember... So I did like a talk with Shannon once and it was in front of um, a room of 30 incredible female executives. And in the middle of the conversation, Shannon asked the group and she said, well, how many of you guys ask the mother of a child Mm. if they own a gun before you send your kid to their house? Literally not one person raised their hand. And, and I like, remember all the oxygen was sucked out of the room when that question was posed because none of us had even considered that. It's so important that parents ask when they send their kids to friends or families' homes if there are guns in the house and how they're stored. So often I hear, you know, especially when I'm in California, people say, well, I live in a blue state and like, you know, my, my neighbors and my, my friends aren't gun owners, my family aren't gun owners. California has more gun sales than Texas. You know gun owners. There are 400 million guns in this country, and most gun owners are responsible, but not all of them. We know that 4.6 million American kids live in homes with unsecured guns. That means they are unlocked, they're loaded, they're easily accessible. Oh my God. And it's why America uniquely has this unintentional shooting tragedy where kids get a hold of guns and shoot themselves or other people. And we see it over and over again. And the parents have no liability, right? So it depends on the state. Only 28 states have something called a child access prevention law or responsible storage law. So even in those cases, it's essentially a misdemeanor with maybe a $400 fine. Wow. It's not manslaughter. Right. And so, you know, it works well. I believe it or not, Florida has one of the, the strongest child access prevention laws in the country. And we know that they work. The NRA, obviously, and of course, opposes all of those laws. But, but our role at Moms to Men Action is to educate people about responsible storage, to educate them to ask this question. We've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars during the pandemic on ads, uh, digital ads, Because there was a historic rise in gun sales in March and April in this country. About 4.2 million million guns were sold. And that's twice almost as many that were sold the same time period last year. 
So many of those are new gun owners. Depending on where they live, they may not have to have any training. And, you know, they may not know how to securely store a firearm. You know, there were no school shootings in March or April because schools were shut down. I am very worried about what happens crazy. when schools are back in session and, and so many new guns are sold, you know, many of them stored unsecurely. What does that mean for this school shooting epidemic that we have? I mean, the idea that it took a pandemic to prevent a mass school shooting is devastating. It's just devastating. I mean, Shannon, I mean, I, I can only imagine how many times you've had this conversation because I've had it so many times I, I turn blue where I'm talking to someone about gun safety laws and it, immediately I'm hit back with, you can't take my guns away. That's all you want. You just want to take my guns away. And that it's a slippery slope, right? It's like- right. It's it's propaganda. Like there's there is no there is no one who is out there saying I want to destroy the Second Amendment. The idea that you're anti-gun just because you support common sense gun laws is ridiculous, right? Many of our volunteers are gun owners, or their partners are gun owners. There are almost 400 million guns in this country. This is not about undoing the Second Amendment or confiscating people's guns. This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights, responsibilities that have been eroded for decades and decades. And it's why we have 25 times higher gun homicide rates than any other high-income country. It's because we have easy access to guns. And look, we know that about 90% of Americans, 80% of gun owners, and only one in 10 even belong to the NRA. And even 74% of NRA members support common sense gun laws like a background check. So, you know, there will be gun extremists. There will be that vocal minority that will never agree with us. But if we get the what has for too long been the silent majority to vote on this issue, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. My favorite thing in the world, by the way, is just telling people how hard you're kicking the NRA's ass. And, and we always just say that you are outnumbering, outspending, and outmaneuvering them at every step. And I mean, it's the most incredible thing to watch and, and to cheer you guys on and to see these incredible moms in their red shirts in the state houses that you guys have now a 90% track record of beating NRA legislation is is crazy, actually. And it's so remarkable. And and can you maybe share a little bit about the progress that you've been able to make and, and what this fight has been like for you? Yeah. So in the last almost eight years, you know, dozens and dozens of companies have changed their corporate policies, specifically around open carry. That's something that we've been working on for a long time until mom to man action, you know, in most places where open carry is legal, and that's 45 states where it's mostly unregulated, you could bring an AR-15 into, you know, a, a Kroger. You can't do that anymore because of mom's demand action. And we've also had incredible success at passing laws at the state level. We have now closed the background check loophole in 22 states. That's the legislation we tried to pass the Manchin-Toomey bill back in 2013. We have passed something called a red flag law now in 19 states. And a red flag law allows families or police to petition a judge for a temporary restraining order to remove the guns of someone who is a danger to themselves or others. And we have passed laws that disarm domestic abusers now in 28 states. As you mentioned, for the past five years, 
Each year, we have a 90% track record of stopping bad NRA bills. And we have played defense at a federal level. You know, Donald Trump was president, had a Republican Congress for two years. The NRA should have been able to pass their dream legislation, something called concealed carry reciprocity, which essentially oh. undermines states' rights and lets right. you take your permit anywhere. And then a law to deregulate silencers, which, of course, the NRA called the Hearing Protection Act. <laughs> Can you believe that, That's, by the way? That is just... The people who came up with that and pro-life are just horrible humans, but also just... The fact that you think you can rebrand. Remember the moment where they were like, everyone called themselves alt-right? I'm like, I'm sorry. You're a white supremacist or Nazi. Like, you can't have like a cool rock station sounding name. Like, you're not alt <laughs> It sounded like a serious XM station. Like, you're not alt-right. You're white supremacist. And those words matter. It failed because the NRA could, even though they gave Donald Trump $30 million, they still could not pass their priority legislation. So what does success look like for you now? Well, the, the cathartic moment that we've all been waiting for in Congress, I think, is on the horizon. You know, we are going to spend $60 million in the 2020 elections. Uh, we've already allocated $8 million for Texas, $5 million for Arizona, more announcements coming. But that's a lot of money. It's twice what we spent in 2018. It's twice what the NRA spent in 2016. And we're going to do it to elect gun sense candidates up and down the ballot, state legislatures, Congress. We have to elect a gun sense president. We have to flip the Senate, which we think we can do. We have mm -hmm. to hold the House and change the makeup of state legislatures. Once we do that, all those bills that are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, can be signed, you know, within the first 100 days of an Biden administration. Yes. I am very hopeful that we will start playing offense soon at a federal level. It was amazing seeing all of those Democratic candidates take selfies with, with all the Moms Demand Action volunteers all across America and, you know, discuss this issue on a national stage. And I mean, you really have seen the, the, the shift and, and progress that you've made. And I think that's something that that comes up a lot on this podcast is this idea, and I really learned it from you, which is that that change is incremental and compromise is so important in the process. Compromise is important, but also that's the way the system is set up. Yes, we would have loved to have done this overnight. That would have been fantastic. I would have done a lot of different things with my life in the last eight years, but it's like drips on a rock. And it is a marathon, not a sprint. You have to show up at every gun bill hearing. You have to meet with your lawmakers. You have to you know, show lawmakers that if they do the right thing, you'll have their back. If they do the wrong thing, you'll have their job. That takes several election cycles. Mm -hmm. It is how the system is set up. And to deride people who are in it for the long haul as though incrementalism isn't enough, you know, it, it's easy to criticize it. If you're not in the arena doing the hard work, what I call the unglamorous heavy lifting of grassroots activism, right. it is how change gets made in this country. And it is really, really hard work. And I just think it's demoralizing and to wrong to, to act as though small change isn't enough change because it adds up. Well, it's the purity test that we always hear being discussed around the elections about, you know, the progressive policies of a candidate and does it go far enough? And if it doesn't fulfill everything that you think it should be, do you abandon it entirely or do you support and, and acknowledge that this is a step toward the ultimate goal? 
Yes. You know, a volunteer's husband once said to me, and I don't understand football, but he once said to me, (laughs) sometimes entire football games are won by field goals. And I understand Uh that metaphor because it's true. You're not going to always get a touchdown, but you have to celebrate and build on those incremental gains that you, that you do get. I thought you were going to say that you can, you can win by playing laterally. Yeah. I don't know what any of those things mean. (laughs) I mean, it's funny, you know, Deborah and I were talking about this before. We're like, it's funny that we are doing a podcast on activism and Shannon like literally wrote the book on activism. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's like a phrase and I'm horrible at phrases because I'm, it's part of like my English was my second language. So I always get them wrong, but you did actually write the book on activism, which was Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World. Yes, and everybody um, go out and read it. Thank you. All proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations and it just came out in paperback. Oh, great. Congratulations. Why do you think women have become the leaders and, and the most prominent voices in the gun safety conversation? Well, if you look at activism in this country, if you go all the way back to prohibition, it was the first time women were allowed to be activists. I always call women multitasking mofos. Uh, you add a baby into that. And, and, you know, I feel like I can get so much done in an hour really, really well. And I think that comes from being a mom. I think it comes from being a woman. My husband once said to me that even if he had a horrible illness, he wouldn't spend as much time try- trying to treat it as I spend trying to address gun violence something that I've never been directly impacted by. Wow. And I, I think that, is, that speaks to the fierceness of mom protecting her family mm-hmm. and her community. You're an active board member of Emerge America. Why do we need more women to run for office? So I, I think there's a real moral imperative right now that women run. And, and I say this to every single woman who's listening to us. I don't care if you want to be the coroner the sheriff, city council, school board, state house, Congress, I don't care. Pick a position and run for it. As the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. We see that over and over again in this country. Violence Against Women Act hasn't moved from Mitch McConnell's desk because the NRA is going to rate lawmakers on how they vote on it. There's a provision that will prevent convicted stalkers and dating partners from having easy access to guns. Over and over, we see how we are often victimized or exploited because we don't have a seat at the table. Hmm. And to make things more equitable and more fair and to protect women and our families and our communities, we have an obligation to run when we can. If you are kind and compassionate and committed and engaged, you are more than qualified to run for public office. And this is the thing that, that I see come up so much just mentoring women in business and mentoring women in this this more activism space and politics is this idea that they don't know if they should run because they don't know if they have enough experience. They don't know the answers to every question. They can't answer, you know, the name of the bill. And they feel like until they know all the information and that they're qualified, they're not ready to run for office or they're not ready to apply for, you know, the the pay increase or the the job title that they want because they don't know that they're qualified. And I'm like, all of those people are just figuring it out as they go. And that's what I learned. As I moved up in my career and I started serving on boards and and on the C-suites of, of executive teams, I was like, oh, 
we're all we're all figuring it out. It's not like they have all of this information that I don't. It's just taking that step and believing in yourself and and being committed to learning as you go. If so, I had waited until I knew everything there was to know about what I'm doing right now, I still wouldn't have started Moms Demand Action. I was drinking from a fire hose. I have failed publicly many, many times. Failure is feedback. We call it losing forward. You're going to lose a lot mm. in activism. But if you learn from it, you will win the next battle. And I think it's something particular to women that we feel ashamed or worried about failing. And we feel like we have to cross every T and dot every I before mm-hmm. we jump in. Men don't have that same gating factor. They're, they're like, oh, wait, it requires 10 years of experience and I have one? I'm applying. Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to see women be a little more courageous and brave and and be willing to fail. I read somewhere there was a a study and it found that women wait until they are overly qualified to ask for a promotion or a raise and men ask when they are underqualified. That is what has contributed to the disparity in the pay. It's how we're raised. It's how we're socialized, right? And then It's on us to look at that within ourselves and recognize that. I guarantee you 90% of the people who are are listening to us right now could and should run for office. And I'm just asking them to put their toes in the water. If nothing else, Google Emerge and and look into a training near you and test it out and see what what you might be interested in running for. What are three things that people don't know about you? Oh my gosh, we... We've covered so much material in this discussion that I well, I know don't three know that things I've ever shared awesome that everyone doesn't know. So <laughs> okay, I, go ahead. I mean, go ahead. You refuse to eat like a vegetable or a fruit of any sort of any kind. <laughs> I've even been hypnotized to like them, and it didn't work. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, it didn't work. I I've been hypnotized, and it totally worked for me. For fruits and vegetables? No, I went when I was. <laughs> No, for, she's like for, you ate a zucchini for smoking cigarettes, and I would think that nicotine would be a harder thing to change than an aversion to a green pepper. I really hate pulp. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a good one. See, that's a good one. What's your favorite TV show? You mean besides Will and Grace? Yeah. Yes. My favorite TV show. I have been watching so much Netflix and I have to- Can we not pretend like it's not The Housewives and you're going to name some like deep oh, oh, sounding HBO show? Okay, so here's Come my on. deep show is Unorthodox. <laughs> Amazing. Oh yeah, Amazing. you told me to watch that. It was really good. My very uh, shallow show is pretty much any Housewives city. It doesn't really matter. I'm not picky. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a good diversion- when they start to scream at each other, I'm kind of like, you know what? <laughs> My life is really normal. Wait, what's this gardening thing that you've been doing? It's very confusing to me. I am too. I, I did not are you, realize. Are you gardening vegetables? <laughs> no, that would be weird. <laughs> no, she does not like vegetables. I don't want to touch them. However, when, I, when the pandemic started, if you had told me that, you know, 70 days in, I would be A, ironing my sheets, and B, arranging flowers. I mean, I have bought all of the accoutrements, like flower frogs, special vases, special pillows for the flowers. I mean, it has become a whole thing. It, what do you mean a flower? Wait, a, a pillow? pillow? What does that mean? 
it's called a Holly Chapel pillow. And it's like this mesh ball and you put it in a vase and then you stick the stems Ah. in the holes so they don't all clump together. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought it was like a a support thing. Me too. Like they're sleeping. (laughs) Like you put the... (laughs) Clearly, Deborah and I are Jewish and don't garden. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've gotten very into that uh, during the pandemic. Amazing. Well, Deborah's taking ukulele lessons, so yes, equally useful skill. Yes, ukulele <laughs> and piano, but ukulele. Wow. Yes, yes. What do you hope to do with that after the pandemic? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope to whip it out as a party trick. <laughs> you know, whip it. I like the idea of you hiding the ukulele <laughs> under your clothing, and then you're going to whip it out. Well, it's it's red. <laughs> I bought I a don't red. I don't know what to say about all this. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Shannon, I love you. Thank well, you. Thank you for having for me on. I'm so, Shannon, so honored. Incredible. You are just, thank you. Thank you're you. the coolest person that we know by leaps and bounds. And wow. we're so grateful that you respond to our text messages and let <laughs> us entertain the idea that we're best friends, the three of us. I have no other questions other than I just love you. Thank you for being the most incredible inspiration for all of us. We love you. We love you. We bow down to you. Oh, oh sorry. One last thing. How do people how do people support Moms Demand Action and Shannon R. Watts? <laughs> so you can go to our Moms Demand Action Facebook page, and we have one for every state too. You can find Moms Demand Action on Twitter at, at Moms Demand. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Shannon R. Watts. Okay. Amazing. Okay, send me that photo. I was going to say, now you can take the picture. Thank you. You're the best. That was great. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for tuning in. And please join us next week as we completely lose our minds trying to keep it cool in conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Ah! We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs> <laughs>